The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. The economic response has been both timely and appropriately large. It may not be the final chapter, given that the path ahead is both highly uncertain and subject to significant downside risks. Stocks around the world trade lower after Fed Chair Jerome Powell warns of lasting economic damage. Meanwhile, the Fed's Cleveland president, Loretta Mester, tells CNBC the outlook could be dire and the recovery slow. At the end of the year, still we're going to have output below the level it was um, at the end of last year. And- President Trump calls Powell his most improved player in rare praise for the Fed chair, but says he still disagrees on one point, once again pushing for negative rates. A warning from one of the financial world's biggest names, billionaire investor David Tepper tells CNBC this is the second most overvalued market in history, those comments also weighing on Wall Street sentiment. Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot put the brakes on their dividend using a joint statement to cite demand destruction while confirming the merger between the two auto giants is advancing well. Plus a caffeine boost from Starbucks. The US coffee giant reopens 150 stores across Britain to provide takeaway beverages, saying it hopes to be fully operational by the end of June. So it's all about the central bank noise this morning. Let's focus on what Jay Powell actually said. The Fed chair believes the coronavirus crisis has created, quote, significant downside risks. He's warned of a highly uncertain path forward. And his gloomy outlook came with an additional warning that further stimulus measures will likely be required to mitigate the economic fallout. In recent days, the Fed Fund's futures market began to price in negative rates. But Powell ruled out the prospect, saying the central bank has a good toolkit. The evidence on the the effectiveness of negative rates is is very mixed. It's very mixed. There's no... uh, there are research that says that they've been effective. Uh, there are plenty of doubters. Uh, and the issue really is the concern over, over uh, interrupting the intermediation process and uh, you know, reducing bank profitability, thereby reducing uh, the availability of credit in the economy. So it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's, an, it's an unsettled area, I would call, um, call it. Those comments coming in uh, answers to questions if you are wondering who the other person in the box was. Uh, President Trump has once again criticised the Fed's reluctance to use negative interest rates. However, he did praise Jay Powell's actions over recent months. The chairman has, and he's done a very good job over the last couple of months. I have to tell you that because I've been critical, but uh, in many ways I call him my MIP. Do you know what an MIP is? Most improved player. It's called the Most Improved Player Award. Did you ever get one of them when you were playing baseball, Corey? Good baseball Certainly player? Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, chairman, he's uh, my MIP right now for the last uh, few months. I think he's done a very good job. I disagree with him on one thing now, and that's uh, negative rates.
Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester told CNBC that two starkly different scenarios are possible, saying a recovery could be just as likely as a, quote, much more dire outcome for the U.S. economy. We could see as the economy starts to reopen and activity picks up um, some improvement over the second half of the year. But at the end of the year, still, we're going to have output below the level it was um, at the end of last year. And we may see the unemployment rate come down, but it's still going to be in the double digits or maybe high single digits. So I agree that that's a reasonable outlook, but a number of things would have to fall into place for that to happen. And an equally, um, almost equally probabilistic outcome is much more dire than that. Well, there you go. It's almost uh, any outcome is possible at this point, isn't it? But if you are still in need of more commentary from the Fed, then we've got positive news for you. We're going to hear from more top Fed officials later today. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashgari, the Atlanta Fed's uh, Raphael Bostic and Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan are all set to talk about the state of the U.S. economy in a series of webinars. Uh, So what are some of those big fish investors think? Well, the market is overvalued, according to David Tepper, the founder of Appaloosa Management. His warning in a CNBC interview sent the Dow to a session low as the highly followed billionaire investor said stocks could fall from these levels. It's definitely, as of yesterday, now the market's down from yesterday, um, I would say that you know ninety nine was more overvalued ninety nine two thousand, but uh, yeah, I would say it's one of the most overvalued markets, maybe the second most overvalued I've ever seen. The market is pretty high, and the Fed's put a lot of money in here, and it's a uh, question: Has there been different misallocations of capital in the markets? And certainly, you're seeing pockets of that now in the stock market, um, and the market is, by anybody's standards, pretty full. I think that you know uh, that the bottom is in. I think probably if the situation remains, you know, if we're just dealing with a virus and there's no other issues that come up. President Trump has lashed out at Wall Street bears, including Tepper, in a tweet he attacked the so-called rich guys taking aim at pessimistic investors for giving gloomy forecasts when they stand to profit from market crashes, suggesting it is, quote, barely legal. Uh, well, let's have a quick look at the, uh, the U.S. futures then and the uh, implication in terms of the open is uh, where we are implied uh, in terms of the open. As you can see here, we are uh, 51 points lower at the start of the trading session uh, based on what the Dow Jones futures are implying at this point. So let's have a look at the US markets and let's spend a little bit more time on this story. This is how we closed out the session then uh, in the US markets overnight. And important just to keep your eye on this number, I think, the 516-point decline we saw in the Dow. And it just felt like there was a little bit of pushing on an open door yesterday as Jay Powell talked about the difficult economic environment, talked away from negative interest rates. And then you had uh, people like David Tepper coming on CNBC and just saying, this is the second most overvalued market I've seen. 1999 was the first, if you want to know where he expressed uh, concern about overvaluation 
previously. And what was also interesting, I thought, is how he cited some of the technology companies in particular. He thought big stocks like Amazon, Facebook and Alphabet may be fully valued. And we saw the Nasdaq also coming off in the session yesterday, down one and a half percent as people, I think, began to absorb some of that commentary and think about how far technology has come in advance of the other major indices. Let's have a look at uh, the U.S. banks. Obviously, if we uh, had heard Jay Powell talk even more enthusiastically about negative rates, we might have seen even bigger losses here. But yesterday was a moment, I think, where the banking sector, again, was in the center of a reconsideration about the consequences of weaker economic activity and what loan loss provisions may look like. And notable, the CFO of Goldman Sachs was out talking about some of their exposure and about how they feel comfortable with where they are in their exposure across different industries in the United States. Uh, Nevertheless, the stock still down over 3%. So the Asian session, where are we in the Asian session? Well, the markets in Asia, obviously not able to buck the overall trend of negativity coming out of the United States. And just to throw another story into the mix here, President Trump extending for another 12 months his current position on not allowing Chinese telecom businesses to get involved in the U.S. telecom sector. Just another rattle of the saber with regard to the China U.S. difficulties at the moment and the tensions that currently exist. Let's have a look at the Treasuries. Um, Again, just worth pointing out to you um, some re-engagement with the Treasury market, particularly as investors step away from equities and have another rethink about whether they've got their risk strategy right at this point. Um, We don't have it up here on the board, but it is also worth pointing out to you, I think, that gold started to see a little bit of a bid yesterday on the back of the uh, J. Powell comments around negative interest rates. Uh, so let's uh, talk. spend a little bit of time um, talking about what all of this means. Um, Steve is going to join us here. And Steve, you're outside a coffee shop, I believe, but I'm not sure it's open. <laughs> No, yeah, neither am I. Uh, it's been very tricky finding a drive through open uh, around central London. Not, funny enough, that many uh, Starbucks, but uh, uh, there are a lot of Starbucks, of course, but the open drive throughs is a little bit of a, a difficult thing to find. So we're using it as a metaphor today, but of course, Starbucks, like a lot of other uh, fast food chains and coffee shops and retail outlets, are trying to open up at the moment. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on, Jeff. Let's get back to your stories, because I think there's some absolutely fascinating issues all compounded in everything you've said so far so eloquently. Uh, let's Let's get back to this um, market players who have a position saying things are going to go bad scenario. Well, I have no problem with it whatsoever. As you know, I have no problem with short selling either, as long as people know where everyone's coming from. It's all very well, for instance, Mr. Ackman talking about all hell breaking loose, uh, as long as people know that he stands to make billions of dollars if the market goes down. And I feel the same about any of these people as well. So for the president to bemoan it, well, he's got every right to say he disagrees. But the fact is, as long as we know where people are coming from and there's full disclosure, I have no problem at all. I mean, let's face it, many, many people come onto our channel saying we think the market's going to record levels or we think the market's going to hell in a handbasket. And as long as we probe them properly about what their position is and that they're doing it to make money, I see no problem. I don't know about you. 
And um, let's face it, even though we, we've seen uh, Druckenmiller, Tepper, Lasry, and I think you, you mentioned Ackman, um, all out there talking about valuations and whether they feel comfortable with this market. There are some on the other side of the ledger who are obviously dabbling, some who are dabbling and not talking about it, and some like Bill Miller who are coming on CNBC and saying, you've got to buy the airlines. They look so cheap at this point. If you don't buy the airlines, that's a bet against there being a vaccination developed here. But it does feel like we're at one of those natural interregnum moments for markets after we've had a good push up. The momentum has been relatively strong, but the Dow is back below its 50% crash retracement level, which some of the technicians do take note of. Powell is out there saying, it's going to be really painful as we go forward here. And of course, we've got people like Loretta Mester. And as much as I tried really hard to work out whether she was actually saying it's going to get better or it's going to get worse, I, I still didn't feel that I knew quite where she stood on the position of the economic recovery. So as I say, in one of these moments, where you've got Powell out there, you've got all this noise from various Fed officials for our investing audience just pulling that signal out of the noise at the moment is going to be incredibly difficult. And particularly so given that there have been these 30% plus gains on the S&P since we had that March 23rd low. So you do wonder which of these different snapshots of information right now is the most relevant in understanding what the driver is for another leg up for equities if we can get it at this point. I have a strong view on this, and I haven't actually talked about it for the last week or so, but anyone who listened to me over the last month or so will know there has to be sequencing. We have a dual crisis here. Let's be blunt about this and strip it down. We have the coronavirus pandemic, first and foremost, which then, as a secondary effect, is creating an economic recession at best, an economic depression at worst, and with all the market consequences and investment consequences thereafter. So we have to solve sequence problem A before we can look at the ramifications for sequence problem B. Uh, And and that's why I think the the advances or not on uh, vaccines, the advances or not on serology, these have got to be the key. Uh, And mortality is coming down and infection rates coming down and R rates coming down. If we cannot solve problem A, we cannot solve problem B or indeed quantify what problem B is going to be for the short medium and long term. It's all very well me coming out in the next few days and telling you about Britain opens up stories. But if there is no vaccine, there has to be social distancing. And if there's social distancing, we have to have certain conditions and barriers on economic growth, barriers on transportation, quarantines going on, possibly protectionism building up at the same time and companies being supported more by the state, a state which can't necessarily afford it. So it has to come back to the right old basic story that we talked more and more about about and have talked less and less about as this crisis has gone on. And that is solving the coronavirus epidemic. And that's why, actually, I'm going to be slightly more positive here, is that the fact that I saw a story today, which I think is being carried very heavily uh, on a lot of the British press, which is Public Health England, have passed that serology check test, Jeff, that we talked uh, with Severin Schwan about from Roche. Uh, and they really like the idea of this. They like the specificity of it, which is 100%, i.e. no false positives. Porton down of a value there and say this could be. And Boris Johnson, what is it, a month ago, said if we get a good antibody test, this could be a game changer. Well, it looks like we might have a good antibody test. So perhaps 
there is a kernel of positivity against what is a very opaque picture, my friend. Terrific. Well, don't steal all the thunder on that because I know we're going to talk about it in about 10 minutes time and some of the other developments around the pharmacology. And I'll just throw in one other point. If our audience are listening and watching this morning and they're kind of scratching their heads, there is the other great point that I think Steve mentioned uh, earlier in the week and something we talked a lot about on the program. When interest rates are as low as they are at the moment and you are losing return in asset classes left, right and centre, it is worth bearing in mind uh, on that Tina argument, i.e. there is no alternative, that there is still a yield in equities, regardless of the fact that some companies are cutting back dividends. And Steve, one thing I was uh, interested in yesterday was just checking in on the FTSE. Given the declines we've seen where we are on the yield here, and you're still getting a 5% yield plus from the FTSE index, uh, so you don't have to be a rocket scientist uh, you don't have to pick a specific stock that you think is going to do well in this environment. You can just have a look at the index per se. So let's have a look at uh, Deutsche Telekom then. The company uh, just out with numbers. The uh, business says coronavirus will have a limited impact on the financials. The group reporting a 10.2% increase in first quarter core profits to 6.54 billion euros. That beat the company's own expectations. The group repeating its forecast for adjusted annual earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and AMO amortization uh, of 25.5 billion euros this year. So uh, a 19.943 billion euro revenue number here, which was pretty much in line with the expectation and that adjusted EBITDA of 6.5 billion euros, which was better than the poll expectation. Still to come, casualty claims spike at Zurich Insurance. We're going to catch up with the CFO, George Quinn, about the fallout from the pandemic. We'll see you in a moment. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back, everybody. Zurich Insurance expects coronavirus-related property and casualty claims to climb to $750 million this year after taking a $280 million hit from the pandemic in the first quarter. The Swiss insurer expects the virus claims and sharp falls in the financial markets, though, to remain a, quote, 2020 earnings event, but added it's uncertain how the pandemic continues to develop. Zurich Insurance reported gross written premiums of $9.7 billion. Pleased to have George Quinn, the CFO of Zurich Insurance, with us. George, good morning to you. And I think those are your words, aren't they? That this will remain a 2020 earnings event. Why the confidence that these uh, claims will fade before we get into 2021? Well, I mean, if you, I think if you look at what's driving the, the, the sources of the, the claims so far, so you've got a combination of business interruption, which is in some of our property policies, 
We've got uh, travel claims. We have some accident and health. I mean, typically our contracts have sublimits of some kind. So at some point, you run out of cover. Now, obviously, we're far away from that today. But I think if you look at, I mean, what we expect from the event, I mean, the scenarios we've run, they would suggest that the overall claims cost is going to be similar to the level that we saw, say, from the hurricanes in 2017. George, I think... um it's been a it's been a, a an improving picture from Zurich over the years, and you and Mario are doing a terrific job over there. And I think what was interesting in these numbers was just to see gross written premiums up seven percent on a like for like basis. That feels like a very strong number, way ahead of inflation. Can you continue to repeat that kind of rise? Uh, unfortunately, the short answer is no. So. I think if you looked at the underlying performance this quarter, we'd be talking about a strong um, delivery on the targets that we set. But of course, for obvious reasons, the conversation will be dominated by the impacts of the virus. And that will have impacts in growth in the remainder of the year. I think from our perspective, we expect to see rate continue to improve. So the profitability of business will continue to rise given the, the, the challenge of available capacity. But the economic circumstance will have a direct impact on some of our businesses that are driven by activity. So I think we're expecting that we'll see overall premium volume for the year to be flat to slightly down overall. George, there's been a lot of questions about the legality of claims as well, uh, as opposed to the morality uh, that the insurers should display when helping out a lot of customers as well. This is very important for the industry going forward. And I have a degree of sympathy uh, when we've had big um, debates with the ABI and others about whether it's the spirit of the insurance claim or actually whether it's the legality of it as well. Where do you stand on this as well? Because a lot of insurers are saying we do not cover pandemics. That is the fact, but we will try our best regardless. So I mean, it would be really hard not to have sympathy for I mean, everyone who's suffering in the current events. I mean, we have contracts that have pandemic coverage. So we've got people who've gone out and bought insurance from us that specifically covers this risk. And of course, they get paid. But of course, it's a key part of the system that, I mean, when we plan uh, the capital requirements that we have, when we manage the assets that we use to generate the returns to pay claims, that we understand and we have a clear view of the risks that we accept. And for us to voluntarily accept risks beyond that, I mean, it actually puts the system at risk. And for the people who've bought the coverage, they would also be at risk. So, I mean, I have great sympathy, but I mean, we have these contracts with these structures for a reason. Do you anticipate legal claims, a lot of litigation? We're hearing about lawyers on the other side of Atlantic, as one would expect, as usual as well. Do you expect a round of litigation to affect European insurers? So I think almost without doubt, I mean, already it's started. So, I mean, it's, it's not unusual in the aftermath of a major event such as this, that you'll see this type of activity. Um, it comes about with the territory. I mean, I think the... I mean, there's, there's clearly some uncertainty out there in some quarters. And unfortunately, courts tend to be the place where this gets adjudicated. I think we are seeing some positive steps, for example, in the UK, where the regulator is going to try and accelerate that process to give people the clarity that they need to move on um, and plan. Um, but I mean, unfortunately, it's you'd expect it in this circumstance. 
George, if the insurance industry were to lose uh, in the courts on these cases, well, does it create a potential existential threat for the industry as a whole? I've heard uh, talk about, yes, despite the industry being incredibly well capitalised with some big capital buffers, the size of the claims that could come down the pipe could actually overwhelm the entire industry. So I, I, I don't see it to be that dramatic. I think that I mean, it's entirely possible that you'll find... I mean, a single company or a small group of companies that potentially in that circumstance are overexposed. But I think if you look at the larger players, including us, um, I wouldn't expect uh, a decision in a single country on coverage where we believed that we had excluded it. But if we lost that argument, that that would imperil uh, the system. I don't believe that. Uh, George, I just wondered, what's the position on dividend at the moment and um, uh, uh, paybacks to shareholders? So, I mean, you, you saw we made a dividend payment for last year back at the beginning of April. Our regulator had asked us to take a look at the um, the developing events and just reassess whether we believed it was in the best interests of all of the different parties to make the payment. We made that reassessment. We paid. Um, we've reported our capital position today. So you've seen that from a Swiss solvency test perspective, uh, we estimate end of uh, quarter one, we're at 186%. We also have our own internal capital measure, uh, which sits at the bottom end of our uh, target range, but we're in the green. Both of those numbers accrue the expected dividend that we would pay next year. So, I mean, it's obviously too early to make any comment about what we'll, what we'll do in April 2021. Uh, but, I mean, the company's robust. I mean, despite the impact of the claim, we're in a good condition. And again, just to put it in context, the numbers that we presented today are similar to the levels that we saw in 2017 from natural catastrophes. Um, a number of the brokers have been expressing concern about the overall sector. I know Exane was out there saying cost of capital could rise across the industry as a whole, and that may create structural problems or structural damage. In this environment, do you see yourself as an opportunistic acquirer of other businesses. Um, how do you see yourselves behaving in the environment as, uh, as those things come to bear? So I, I certainly won't, I wouldn't want to describe it as opportunists. Um, I think it, at this point, it's just it's too early in the development of this event to make uh, statements or to, to give views of what will happen. But I mean, it's, it's pretty typical in these events that Stress will increase, I think, over the coming weeks and months. I don't think it will go down um, in the short term. And, of course, that may put people in positions where they need support. And companies like us, the stronger companies in the sector, uh, should be able to play that role. Um, but I think it's just way too early to, to start to speculate on that. And George, just some, something our investing audience might be interested in. Obviously, you have investment portfolios that you're trying to manage in this current environment. We listened to Jay Powell ruling out negative rates for the US, but it's a reality we're having to deal with in Europe. Mm. What are you doing in the investment portfolios? I believe they were very defensively uh, and carefully structured anyway, but are you making adjustments? Are you encouraging the managers to have another look at what you own? Yes, you're absolutely right. So we're a relatively defensive investor. I mean, heavy fixed income, heavy high quality, not so much equities. So we've been doing things at the margins. I mean, we've long believed that 
I mean, one of the most important parts of the proposition is consistency. So we, we try not to make major sharp changes because we believe that can result in much worse outcomes. But at the margins, we've taken some of the equity exposure off, we've taken some of the credit exposure off, and we've tried to reduce some of the interest rate exposure. But by and large, I mean, if you looked at the portfolio overall, it's similar to the one you would have seen uh, when we started this. I mean, I, I really believe that I think the way that we and manage through this crisis will be dictated in large part by how we started this. Um, and if you weren't in the right place before you started, it was pretty hard to adjust afterwards. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.